Welcome to the Persistence You podcast with Lisbeth, and that's you as in university. But we're much more of a community here. I'm your host, Lisbeth Meredith, author, speaker, and online teacher. Each week, I'll be delivering stories from amazing survivors and strivers, all threaded together with a dose of persistence. So glad you're listening. How are you doing this week? I hope it finds you well. Today is April 5th, 2022, as I record this tiny section of the podcast. And I wanted to respond to a couple of questions that people have asked as to how they can support the podcast. I have a link that I need to remember to put in my weekly emails, but it you can always, if you wanted to give a little bit of money ongoing, support me at patreon.com. So I'll put that link in show notes, but it's always in my weekly emails that you can sign up for at lameredith.com. But if once in a while something really strikes you and you think, oh, I'd like to buy her a cup of coffee for her effort, there's also a buy me a cup of coffee, which is not ongoing support. It's, it's once in a while for a couple of dollars whenever you feel like it. So those are a couple of ways and thanks for asking. I am so feeling supported this week because I am at Tennessee Fitness Spa. So shout out to the owners and to the other people here at the fitness spa. They've allowed me to speak for a couple of days. And so I talked about my book to memoir process or or, yeah, memoir to rather movie process. And then today will be a workshop on how to write your own memoir. And it's just a brief, like one hour workshop. It's so much fun to connect with people. So there are so many ways to feel supported and loved. And for me, this was a great way. Welcome persisters and brothers to Persistence You with Lisbeth. And today I am really thrilled for a long awaited interview with Ed Deganji. Ed is an author from Hillsboro, North Carolina, but before that, he was a man on a mission. When Ed was approaching his 70th birthday, something changed for him that became the story of this next part of his life. So I am totally fascinated by what Ed has to say, and I want him to tell it in his own words. So welcome, Ed. Thanks for being here today. Elizabeth, thank you so much for inviting me. I'm thrilled. Yeah, it's it's been a been an adventure. It's been a great ride. Uh, basically, to, in a nutshell, and I'm not sure it's easy to put it all in a nutshell. I was <laughs> I was adopted at the time of my birth, and that was back in 1948. Okay. And my birth wa- or my adoption was privately arranged, which in the end gave me some advantages that a lot of folks who are searching their their backgrounds don't have. But I I grew up in a pretty idyllic situation. I had parents who I don't think could have loved their own child or their naturally born child any more than they loved me. Uh, the, The interesting thing is I don't recall ever in my life either my mother or my father saying, you're adopted. Uh my wow. mother you know, my dad passed away in the 1970s my mother in the 1980s and before she had passed away she told my wife or my fiance at that time that you know she had been instructed by by the doctors to hold your baby and say you're my wonderful adopted baby and i love you and she wow. must have done that right up to the time that i could start remembering things and stop there because i honestly don't have any recollection Okay. But one day in 
during my childhood, you know, I, I was rummaging through some papers and and found a uh, an, a birth certificate that said certificate of birth by adoption. Oh, and that kind of you know kind of triggered me and made made me a little bit alert. And I rummaged through some more papers and actually found my adoption decree or what oh. I later learned was my adoption decree. And it had my parents' names on it. It had their attorneys' names and one other name, which at the time I didn't recognize at all. And I just kind of looked at everything, folded it up, put it back away. And I never mentioned it, never questioned my parents. Oh my so, yeah, so to the time they passed away, we we never discussed it. Uh, I really felt no need. I had a, you know, as I said, it was a wonderful childhood, a great life. And it wasn't until about 2017 or so, a uh, number of things came together. We were in a cemetery up in New Jersey, uh, and we were, we were by the grave of my adoptive mother's parents. And it just sort of made me curious about, boy, I'd like to know more about where they came from. And I knew they were Ukrainian. Uh, so I sort of stuck that in the back of my mind. I'd been reading a book called The Lost by Daniel Mendelssohn, and it was a book about his own search for relatives that had perished in the Holocaust. And it was not so much about the Holocaust, just kind of a detective mystery, trying to determine what their, he knew what the fate was, he wanted to know how it all occurred. That, oddly enough, occurred in the Ukraine as well. I'll be darned. And, you know, and then, you know, then there are all sorts of TV shows about long lost families and, you know, and then finding your roots and advertisements from, from ancestry. So when we got home from New Jersey, I went to our local library, sat down, plugged in my adoptive grandparents' names, and the adventure started there. Uh, you know, information became so easily available. I sat there and I looked at the computer and I said, if it's this easy, let me go home. Let me get that paper with that one unknown name on it, and let me see what I can find. Oh, and by wow. then, I knew. I said that had to be my birth mother. Sure. So I took the name back to the library and sat down at Ancestry again, typed it in, and a wealth of information came rolling out. And you know, you sort of look at this page of all sorts of documents and, and reports and. And wonder which one do I click first? And <laughs> yes. you know, I was born in 1948, and there was a 1949 application for a um, visa to go from Miami to Rio de Janeiro. Okay. And I said, okay, now that's that's the closest to my birth, and that's pretty curious as to what it was. And I opened it up, and there's a picture of my birth mother. And that was just that was just stunning. I just sort of sat there and I looked and looked what around. What did she look like, Ed? What did she look like? Did did you have any feelings when you saw that picture? Yeah, sure. It's you know, it's it's a shock. You know, it's all of a sudden you see where you came from. Right. And you know, and I, I sort of looked and I, you know, I look and I don't always see the resemblances, and I didn't see myself in her face, honestly. Okay. But I later sent that picture home via email, and I showed it to my wife, and and she listed, "Oh, sure, it looks just like you, and it looks like it looks like James. James is our son." Okay, and you know what? I still don't see it, or <laughs> or, or not that clearly. But you know, it was 
you know, I just sat there and I looked at the picture and I kind of looked around like, is anybody else seeing this? You know, nobody else would have wouldn't have mattered to them. And right. you know, I, I went through a couple of more documents, some census papers and things like that. And, you know, I found that she had two older sisters and an older brother and and her grandparents lived with him. So, you know, all of a sudden in in five minutes, you've got a snapshot of of a family. Yeah. And, you know, but the the interesting thing was the visa application listed her occupation as an artista. Okay. And, you know, okay, artista, you know, what is an artista doing going from Miami to Rio? And I didn't know what kind of artista. So that kind of set me off on another another search. You know, she had a, the, it listed a, her birth name, which her last name is Narowski. You know, she okay. came from a Polish family. And ultimately, I found that she got married seven Well, she had, as she traveled, she adopted a stage name. I still didn't know what, you know, what she was doing when she did it. Uh, she adopted the last name Naris. Several years later, got married. She was not married at the time of my birth. And her husband's name was Meza. And in in this in my prowling around, I uh, found two um, two blogs online, both by antique dealers. And both of these antique dealers had purchased products that she, my birth mother and her husband had manufactured, and they were props for big ice shows. And it turned out that both of them had been, had been ice skaters in the big ice skating spectaculars in the 1940s and and 1950s. Oh, my goodness. Her husband was actually a good deal older than her. He had skated in the 1930s as well and had done some Broadway performing in the 1920s. But it allowed me to, to find out what the name was, what they did. And when I had put in there Genevieve Nara's Ice Skater, you know, the blogs came up and one of the blogs had a just a page full of pictures and even her high her junior high school diploma oh my goodness was posted and the woman who with the blog posted that you know we had been to an antiques auction it was women's history month i had no idea who this woman was but it was an interesting time a seemingly interesting person so i bought it and it was this carton full of memorabilia so I, you know, <clears throat> excuse me, I reached out. I, I found the, the woman on Facebook, sent her a message and said, I'm exploring a possible family relationship. And and that's something I did with anybody I reached out to. I just didn't want to get too, too ahead of myself and say, that's my mother. Tell me. So, you know, I wrote and she wrote right back and she said, yes, I still have this. And this was three or four years after they had purchased it. And she said, but I'm really busy now. I'll get back to you. And a week passed and I never heard from her. So I, I eventually sent her another message. And this time I dropped all the pretense and said, all the things that you have were from my birth mother. I was adopted. And I sort of told her the story. Within five minutes, the telephone rang. Oh. And, yeah, and she said, we've still got this. You know, you need to see it. You need to come here now. And we're in North Carolina. She's in Atlanta. But in about Perfect. a week, 
yeah, about a week or so, my wife and I made the trip to Atlanta and the, you know, this picker, you know, the antiques dealer and her husband came in carrying this big carton. And we went up to our room and started going through it piece by piece. And yeah, it was just a wealth of information. Yeah, and the, the one thing I found is, as this whole journey has gone on is my mother was meticulous about tracing where she was, when she was there, who she was with. And, yeah, so there were some early scrapbooks with her, you know, quote, unquote, press clippings in, from her nice. early years, lots of promotional photographs and lots of photographs of the people that she skated with. And ultimately, those put me in touch with a, with what remains of the that generation of that community. There's still a very active Facebook and Holiday on Ice and Ice Follies community on social oh media. Oh my goodness! Yeah, sadly, you know those those women who skated with my mother were, you know, by the time I started looking, were you ninety, ninety two, ninety three years old. We did have one wonderful experience. I, this carton of information uh, contained a stack of promotional photographs, all autographed, and they were of other people. And one, yeah, one woman autographed hers to the best roommate ever, and she had her name on it. And I went through all those photographs, and I, I could not find any who were alive or any who I could identify except for one. And it was it was it was Izzy, her roommate, and I couldn't find her, but I found a um, found an obituary online that turned out to be for her husband, and it mm-hmm. identif- identified he was survived by his wife, who was a a fifty seven years who had been an ice skater with Shipstead and Johnson Ice Follies, and that's where my mother was, and it listed some names for hit for two sons. So I reached out to one of the sons and. And within a week, he got back to me and he said, Mom is still alive. I've talked to her. She remembers your mother and she would love to talk to you. Oh, what a beautiful thing, Ed. How did that feel? It was, oh, it was wonderful. He said, but he said, there's just one thing. And I said, yes. He said, Mom is in a memory care facility. Oh. <laughs> and he must have heard the, the, the pause. Yeah. And he said, he said, the, he said, the bad news is mom doesn't have a clue what she had for breakfast this morning. She can tell you minute for minute what happened in 1948 and 1947. That is so fascinating how the brain works. So that's, yeah, it was. For you. And I had a wonderful conversation with her by telephone. She was she was an entertaining one. She's very flirtatious, you know. And I, <laughs> I I sort of started out saying I realize it's very unfair to ask somebody who's ninety two about what happened forty five years ago, and you could hear her like pause and she said, "Who told you I'm ninety <laughs> two? And I said nothing. She said, "I'm." She said, "I'm eighty eight. As a matter of fact, I'm eighty five. I said, okay. Yeah. And I was not going to argue with her. So we talked, right. we talked for the better part of an hour. And eventually she, you know, as we were winding up, she said, now, how old did you say you are? Oh, no. And I think I said, I said, yeah, I'm, I'm 69. She said, well, I'm 65, you know. <laughs> and so it was really, it was a cute conversation, but really good. And it probably that took place in June of 2017. 
Right. I'm thinking that September, my wife and I traveled out to Minnesota and met with her. You know, we went and we had lunch with she and her and her son and and then probably spent another four hours with her in her room just talking and young know, going. She had all of her memorabilia there. And, you know, and at the end, she said, yes, yeah, this is the best time I've had in years. And it was oh. just such a nice thing. Yeah, and sadly, about a year ago, she passed away. You know, she was then about ooh, 96, 97 years old. But what a lovely woman. She had a good long run, though. And, she and what did. did you learn about your mom? And what did you learn about yourself through this process? Oh, you know, I, th- I think what I learned about my mom is, you know, and, you, know you deal about persistence. She she was a woman of persistence. You know, she, yeah, I I my arrival or my unexpected arrival, you know, put her in a place where she needed to make a decision and she, she persevered through it. She, she confronted the situation. She had a strong moral compass, I believe, and did what I think was, was intended to be best for me. And if I had one regret about not meeting her, it was the ability to tell her, you know, you did the right thing and it all worked out well. Yeah, that's um, wonderful. Yeah, she, you know, she, she had lived every little girl's dream in the part in the beginning of her life. She and her husband ran a very successful business that they created. Unfortunately, toward the end of her life, her things came off the tracks a little bit, and it was not nearly so good as it had been. But I okay. think right up to the end, she had her, she had her focus on on the way things should be. And you know, and and purported herself with great dignity. I had the the pleasure of meeting a lot of well, a lot of a good handful of people who had known her at one time or another, and people were just invariably positive about her, and you know, her kindness and her generosity, and you know, Izzy, who we met, just remembered, you know, she was very, very quiet. She was very professional. She was a little bit older than most of the other girls, and that's why I wanted to to be with her because you know it was uh, it was just a more stable type of experience. Uh, what I learned is just you know you've got to stick with it. I think my my biggest challenge was I knew that she had a a surviving son from her marriage, and I found him online. I thought. And I sent a I sent a letter to the address I found and came back address the unknown. Oh. So I looked harder and I found another address and I sent it there. That one didn't come back at all. I looked again and finally it took four or five tries. And I finally made a connection with somebody who who said they had known my uh, my birth mother and her family as a child. And still had some contact with my brother. He told me that, you know, he had been in an accident, and was in a, in a rehab facility, but okay. he would make a contact for me, and we we ultimately did connect. Good. And so that was good as well. Um, you know, quite accidentally, trying to learn what my ethnicity was, and nothing more. I just I had always identified with my. Uh, with my birth mother's Ukrainian family and my birth father's Sicilian family. I said, let me find out for real. 
So I did an ancestry DNA test and, you know, probably it, it was several months because I, I did it right at Christmas in the midst of the rush. And I got back my pie chart and it told me that I was, oh, probably 78% Eastern, a mix of Eastern European and Ashkenazi Jew. And then a kind of a mix of, of British Isles and Northern European. But then when I went to the list of connections or relations, uh, I found somebody who was listed as a probable, probable first cousin. And I knew from his name that he was not on my mother's side. So yeah, I had never given much thought to, to who my birth father might have been. Oh, yes. And so just accidentally, this name popped up. And, and when we finished talking about it, fortunately, I reached out to him and he got back to me almost immediately. And he was very, very much into the, you know, to the ancestry and, and the heredity. And he looked at it. My first assumption was I was the son of his one uncle. And he said, oh, that makes sense. You know, then he came back to me and said, if your mother was in San Francisco and he said, my uncle never left Texas. And I said, okay, well, that, that sort of, you know, complicates the plot. And then he came back and he said, and I see you have, you know, Ashkenazi Jewish blood. My uncle has no Jewish blood. He said, but it turns out that I'm 25% Jewish. It appears that you're 25% Jewish. And it turned out to be my half brother. So it was my, my, it was my paternal half brother that I was going back and forth with. Oh my goodness. Oh, that's wonderful. So he was able to tell me about my father who I don't believe even knew I existed. You know, I think my mom and he had a summer romance. She left town, found out she was pregnant later. And it sounds like my birth father was a was a bit of a player. Uh-huh. You know, I was conceived between his second and third of five marriages. Ooh. So, you know, and he, you know, and my my brother Rich said, you know, chances are very good that if you know, if my father knew about you, he would have, you know, he probably would have disclaimed any knowledge. He would not have married your mother. He would have, yeah, you know, it was a listings of what he would not have done. <laughs> you know, well, he's honest. He was being honest. You, it was painfully honest. You know, it's kind of yeah. sad. Yeah, it really yeah. was. And it was interesting. We went out to San Francisco where my brother lives and to meet him. My father was also deceased and he was also older than my mother had been. And, you know, we walked in and of, of everyone I've met, he and I looked the most alike. Right. He, he just doesn't have the, the height and you know, when I when we were there a while, he said, "Would you mind meeting my mother? She'd like to meet you." And his mother was the woman that my father married after I was conceived. Okay. And we went in. She was again. I think she's alive now. She's a hundred years old, and she was bright and alert. And she sort of dismissed everybody but me. And she said, "You sit down. I want to talk to you." And she wanted to tell me about my father. She said, you know, she said, I, I need to tell you whatever I can because he's your father. And, you know, there were some nice things. There were some not so nice things. She was sure. very honest with me. But again, you know, this, this whole journey was, 
was a series of, of meetings with very generous people. And that was something she didn't have to do. And it was just another, you know, just another opportunity where a generous person wanted to, to give me what they could to fill in the blanks of this, you know, this previously unknown relationship, you know, so it's, it's, it, it's been a really, really satisfying and very gratifying. When you were younger, Ed, what would that have been? Would it have been different when you were younger and maybe had different expectations, do you think? Because I do worry sometimes when people look for their biological family, that if their expectations are out of whack, it could be pretty soul crushing. Yeah, I think, you know, I twofold. I think, you know, number one, it would have disrupted what was already a very, very good situation. I think, you know, I think even just bringing in the knowledge of, you know, that I ultimately discovered probably would have, you know, just been a little bit disorienting and, you know, and, and just kept it, you know, not as neatly balanced as it was. So, you know, I know an awful lot of people spend their young years needing and wanting to know. And I think, you know, if that's something you need, then I think it's something you need to, you know, you certainly need to pursue. And I think it's owed to you. In my case, I knew and, you know, maybe it's just my nature. I kind of shrugged and said, okay, that's what it is. Let's move on. Right. And, you know, so, so I think that would have disrupted the let's move on piece. And, you know, and then the second part is I, I, I guess, you know, knowing there's always that thing that somebody gave you up. And does it leave you with the feeling that you were not good enough for them? I, I don't think I would have felt that, but I, you know, it would have been a, an interesting thing. One of the pieces of, of paper that I got in that box full of memorabilia that the pickers gave me was my mother's first contract to perform. And I might have looked at that and said, okay, she made a business decision. You know, she had this contract here giving her $100 a week in 1943 or having a baby and having to go home to to her angry, angry Polish parents. And, you know, she took the easy way. So I, you know, I don't know. I, re- I really don't. Uh, you know, my situation worked well for me. And I am the first to acknowledge that, you know, I, I, I was very fortunate. And I think not all of those situations work out nearly so well. Sure. Uh, I think most of that is attributed to my adoptive parents for creating such a good home. But, uh, you know, again, my, as I detail in the book that I wrote, my mother, I think was way ahead of the game of open adoption and that she had a specific list of, of things she wanted for me. And, oh, nice. and, what were they? And, and then tell us about writing the book too, a little bit. Well, she, she came from a very conservative Roman Catholic Polish family. She went to Catholic school through middle school. So she had a, you know, an, an ingrained religious sense to her. So the first thing she wanted was for me to be baptized. Okay. And my father was Sicilian, my adoptive father, and but a lapsed Catholic, as am I. <laughs> my mother coincidentally had grown up as a as or been brought up as Russian Orthodox. But one day by accident, this this I heard from my cousin 
you know, she and her sister were, were in a local town and, and somehow got swept up in a Roman Catholic group baptismal certificate. So she had been baptized. Oh. Uh, they had eloped in 1937. But they went back to church. They got married on the altar. They, you know, and the next day I was baptized in the same church. She was looking for somebody who had good employment. And my parents did at the time. She was looking for somebody with a mother who would stay home. My mother did stay home afterwards. Mm -hmm. And she was looking for somebody who could provide me with a, with a house versus an apartment because we were living in New York. New York City at the time, and my parents were in an apartment, but they ultimately built a house out on Long Island across from my grandparents, and and I know by deduction, my father pretty much detested every minute he spent out there, you know, when he had to go and visit, <laughs> but, you know, immediately after the adoption, they started building house there. My grandparents wow. gave them a piece of property. They built the house in New York for an adoption to become final. You know, the child is first given to to the potential adopted parents as a foster child, which to me is just the scariest thing in the world. You know, it's for the parents to say, okay, you know, you're on a trial basis here. Right. But 18, 18 months later, you know, if you survive all the visits from the social worker and such, then the, the adoption becomes final. 18 months later, the adoption became final. They sold the house and moved back to New York. You know, so, so they were out <laughs> and they did buy another house, but they did it in very close that is so funny. That is so funny that they gamed the system a little bit. But you know what? I love that your mother had specific criteria of what she wanted for you. I think that's an amazing piece. So beautiful. Yeah. Yeah. This was, you know, this was what they called the baby scoop era. And uh -huh, it's when they right. would send unexpectedly pregnant women away to live with you know, to Aunt Tess and, you know, a thousand miles away or, or to a home and then. Yeah, they'd give birth, the baby would be taken from them. My right. mother managed every minute of the pregnancy and managed every minute of the adoption process. That's pretty beautiful. And I mean, it, it's a fabulous story. She was very intentional with her love. It was quite so she had a lot of mother love, you know, and it was very intentional. And you know, in yeah, I it truly was. I think the other great benefit she had was she had a very, very good career up to that point and had the mm -hmm. resources to to manage this and to pay for what she did. You know, so I was, you know, I was, I was born in a private hospital that that kind of catered to uh, to people who wanted privacy and, and discretion. And she, you know, she had access to to good advice. She kept this very much a secret from her own family. And only her oldest sister and her sister's husband knew. When I started meeting cousins afterwards, I said, did you know anything about me? And they all said no, and they all had the same answer. If anybody in our family knew, we all would have known. Right. <laughs> so, you know, so it was a, a well-guarded secret. And when I finally met my maternal half-brother, it took a very long time to convince him of the story. And he kept on saying, Mama would have told me. Oh. I said, I don't think so. And, you know, eventually, you know, I, 
we were able to put her in the same place that I, you know, he kept on thinking, okay, my mama and my, you know, the man who became her, her husband were always together. And that was not the case. Right. Right. Well, that's okay. Now tell me, we're just about out of time, but do tell us about your journey after that to write a book. I am so excited. And, and, you know, where we can get a hold of you. Well, I had so much information at that point, so much to to sort out. I started writing memoir and sort of chapter by chapter about my search and everything that happened as I, as, as I came to know about my mother. And then as I started meeting people and learning more about her, I started writing about her. So in the end, I wound up with a chunk of, of memoir and a chunk of my mother's story. Sure. And you know, I've since started, you know, I've done a, some video presentations called The Sun's Search and A Mother's Journey. And that was kind yeah. of how you know the manuscript came together. And it was two separate pieces. And I sent it to my editor. And she had it for a while. And she wrote back. She said, I'd like to take some liberties with your manuscript. Will you let me? And I said, that, you know, that's why I sent it to you. Right. And she basically took it and almost like a deck of cards kind of interleaved the chapters. So there would be a piece of my search then a piece of her story that related. And it came out to a book that's about 360 pages long. And it's, you know, people, those who have read it have loved it. You know, people relate with her in particular. Yeah, she's. I think that's fabulous. Yes. Such a beautiful title. Give us a title, please, and where we can find your. Yeah, the book, book is called "The Gift Best Given: A Memoir," and that comes from a piece of the text within the book. The book is available, you know, from on order from any independent or any bookseller online from any of the retailers, and I have a website which is www.deganjiauthor. Dot com. That's D-I-G-A-N, like Nancy, G-I, author, dot com. And the book can be ordered there using using a credit card. I'd be happy to send out a signed and personalized copy if that's what anyone likes. You can also order, book is also available in ebook form if, if that's your preference for preference for reading. I love it. And now what are you working on, Ed? What what are you doing to keep on with the writing? Yeah, my birth mother, you know, I, I, as I see it, sort of had her probably four chunks to her life. I was the first piece. Uh, the second piece, you know, by the time a couple of months passed after my birth, she was back ice skating and she was touring with a group called Ice Vogues and then toured with Holiday on Ice. And she traveled through the Caribbean and South America and Europe. And so I'm, I'm writing a piece about that. I'm a follow-up book, which goes from the period 1948 through 1962, when she came back to celebrate her parents' 50th wedding anniversary and her oldest sister's 25th. And, you know, it's, it's, Two pieces. One is recounting the journey to a degree that she was on, but also dealing with with what a woman goes through having surrendered a child for adoption. Because I I don't have any belief that you know surrendering a child is a one time event that you do it and you move on. I think that yeah that stays with you forever. Right. You know. So there be a couple of conversations in the book that that kind of yeah kind of 
talk through that process and, and what she's experienced and how she's managed her new life against recollections of the old life. Love it. I love that. That's terrific. I just, I just, yeah, I still sit and I marvel at at the woman she was, you know, not perfect, but you know, I think she did some great things. She was a trailblazer. She really was. I mean, fantastic. Well, thank you so much for your time today. I've loved this long anticipated conversation. So thank you, Ed. I've enjoyed chatting with you, Elizabeth. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you so much for listening today. If you've enjoyed the show, please follow. And if you've really, really enjoyed it, tell a friend and go ahead and give us a review. I'll see you next week. Proud member of the Podnougan Network.